boys, there's a real fine line between a, a sermon that's too long and a hostage situation. <laughs> you guys know that? You guys are looking at me like, don't look at me. Don't, don't, don't look at me. Everybody doing good? Hey, uh, great news, we won. Right? Now you're thinking, are we talking Mariners last night, which would be a yes, WSU last night, which would be a yes, Chihuahua football on Friday night, which would be a yes. Actually, I'm talking about uh, the fact that the end is written for us as believers, and the reality is, is that we've already won. Amen? Ha ha, tricked you. You thought I would say something about football and make a point. Just use it to set it up. Well, we've come to 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, open up there. And uh, <clears throat> as I've said many times, I'm kind of grilling it into us. A great reminder, I'll add a couple of thoughts to it. But uh, the Apostle Paul here in 2 Timothy has been writing to his young protege. Now, a little broader context to step back. Uh, he's already written one letter, now he's on the second, and the other letter, the third letter that he wrote, was to his other protege, Titus. Right, so you got First and Second Timothy, then Titus, they call them the pastoral epistles. Uh, I kind of, I like that from the standpoint it's pastoral instruction. I don't like it from the standpoint that a lot of people in Christianity say, oh, that's just for people in ministry. We don't need to really dive into those books. Not true. False doctrine right there. So dive in, let's all dive in together uh, into these epistles. A uh, little more context, the Apostle Paul has been imprisoned in Rome. He's waiting for a trial that's going to eventually end, we know now later in history, but it's eventually going to end in his execution. So really when you're looking at the, the, this epistle, this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, the second letter, you're looking at Paul's last words. You're looking at his last words, the last thing that he wrote down, the last thing that he sent out. And of course, Paul has a burning desire to see people come to faith in Christ. He has a burning desire to see the church grow. And he has a burning desire for the church to be strengthened. By the way, those three desires should be all believers' desires. Not just apostles, not just church leadership. Those, those, three, those three desires should be really, they should be cooking a hole in your heart on a daily basis, right? You should desire to see more and more people that you know. And hey, let's face it, we all know lots of people that don't know Jesus, that don't trust in Christ for whatever reason. Maybe they've been burned in the past. They've seen bad examples. They've had a bad experience. They grew up in a, in a home that, that was extremely regimented and very like downhill in your face and and then when they grew up they just said hey i'm not going to be a part of that right we all know people in excuse me in a variety of categories we should have a burning desire really to see people come to faith in christ to be healed to be forgiven for their sins we should have a desire to see the church grow that should be for this church but it should be for all churches and we should have a desire to see the churches not just grow in numbers. The church needs to grow in two ways. It needs to grow laterally in numbers, absolutely. But then it needs to grow 
uh, in depth. We need to have a, We need to be increasing as Christ followers. We need to be increasing our depth of knowledge and understanding, our depth of faith and trust in the Lord, as we grow as believers. So those three desires are kind of out there. You see those desires in in this book of Second Timothy in these themes that Paul writes down. Chapter one. This is all a reminder from last week. But chapter one is this idea of boldness. Uh, chapter, the first half of chapter 2 is the idea of being faithful. He's telling Timothy, be bold and be faithful. Be bold, be faithful. Be bold and be faithful. We all need to be bold and we all need to be faithful. The second half of chapter 2 we looked at last week is the idea of being diligent. He says, be diligent to present yourself to God, an approved workman. So there's a sense in which we need to take our Christian faith serious. We need to uh, dive in uh, and, and, and engage like God is just always there to engage with us uh, the question on the table is is what's your engagement level what's, what's your response to God's draw to you God is drawing saying hey I'm here every morning I'm here every night I'm here at noon for you what's, what's your engagement level there we need to constantly be ramping up that engagement level today chapter 3 as we turn the page in chapter 3, this theme pops out, and that is this theme, completely equipped. Chapter 3 of Second Timothy are 17 verses of really kind of this power-packed, in-your-face, you know, uh, gut check for Christians. That's what it is. It's a reality check. And Paul is going to take Timothy into like, here's where things are going. And it's a reality check. Hey, it's a reality check for us. Right? It's a gut check for us. And the idea that he's saying there is, is he wants him to be completely equipped. We're going to start really, and Les taught me this several years ago, uh, a good study habit is sometimes to go the, to the end of the passage and see what kind of the final point is that the writer's kind of been building up to. And then take that, put it up on the top and say, all right, this is the reason why he said all of the rest. Right? This verse here, this phrase here, this concept, this principle, it's the whole reason for the whole chapter. And that's why I put it down there as being completely equipped. It shows up in verse 17. So scan all the way down. The last phrase there says, verse 17, Paul says, that the man of God may be completely and thoroughly, complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm reading out of the New King James. If you're uh, questioning that, uh, it's... I've just been a New King James guy um, for decades. But anyway, my question is for you, and we're all hardworking folks here in a variety of different occupations. Let me ask you guys a question. How hard is it to do your job uh, if you don't have the right tools? Right? How, for you, you think about your job. I'm going to pick on some, I'm going to pick on Luke because he's a builder. Luke, if you had no tools and had to build a house, how hard would that be? Pretty frustrating, right? You'd be like, what am I going to do? You know, break sticks and stack them in a pile? Like, there you go, folks, Taj Mahal. It don't work that way. If you don't have the right tools, you can't do the job. If you're not thoroughly equipped, you can't do the job, Right? 
It's pretty hard to run a business, Josh, uh, that is uh, exports Apple products if you don't have any form of communication. All the guys are coming up, Josh and, and, uh, and Robbie and, and, and Matt and, and Jonathan are all going to be heading out to do their job. That's what they do for a living. They work for Josh. And, and they're all over the country. And guess what? You fellas can't communicate. Frustrating. It's probably a frustrating enough job, right? A couple of years ago, I said, hey, 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 what about me? How come I can't? And they're like, bro, you can't handle, you can't handle the Apple store. That's their response collectively. You can't handle it. You know what? They're probably right. I don't have that skill set. And I really probably don't have the patience for it. But it's frustrating if you don't have what you need. Whatever you do, you think about what you do or what you've done if you're retired. If you didn't have the tools and the skills to accomplish it, it's really frustrating. Hey, guess what? The Christian life is exactly the same. The Christian life is exactly the same. And, and Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, hey, young fella, you need to be complete. You need to be complete, and you need to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And God wouldn't say that to him, and God wouldn't say that to us today if he didn't have a plan for it to happen. And if he didn't have a reason. <laughs> need another pressure washer, right? How hard is it to, to clean a building without a pressure washer? It's impossible especially for what you guys are doing. So we need to be thoroughly equipped. The great news is, the great news is, is that God's in the equipping business. One of my favorite verses, I've shared this many times, it's an easy one to me, for me to kind of keep circling back to, uh, because oftentimes, oftentimes I find myself like the school bus going to the football game on Friday, starting to climb the hill there by Deer Lake and running out of power. That's right. We were a little late. Because every time this bus hit a, hit a hill, brrr, she'd have to pull over, shut it down, shut it off, restart it, try to go again. It didn't work. Right, so we had a whole pile on one bus. A whole long story. But the, but the reality is, is that you can't, you, you, you can't do what you have to do and work without the skills. You can't do what you have to do without the energy. And spiritually speaking, God says this. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, as His divine power, talking about the Lord, as His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which you have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lusts. So God's equipping. Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy, God's going to equip you. He wants you complete, but He's also going to empower you. Right? Peter kind of adds to that idea. So you're going to be equipped, complete, and juiced up. Right? And energized to do what God's called you to do. That's kind of the complete package, if you will, in a nutshell. The question now arises on the table is why? Why did Paul tell Timothy these things? Why did he get him prepared as he did? Why as Christians do we need to be equipped? That's the question that you have to ask yourself as we roll right into 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'll tell you, here's why. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, the first verse starts out this. Paul tells Timothy, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. That's why. Perilous times will come in the last days. The first point there is, and I write it kind of in a phrase more than a, anyway, in, in, in a different format. But complete and we're complete and equipped because the last days are perilous times. There's kind of three. I, I, I borrowed this um, next slide from David Fawson. He's passed away a couple years ago, but he's an English Bible teacher. And um, he puts out this idea that there's five philosophies in regard to the history of mankind and kind of five ways that people look at history. The first one is cyclic. Uh, in other words, human history repeats itself in a loop. And so we just kind of, you know, through the ages, through the centuries, we've just kind of gone round and round, round and round. Uh, we end up back where we start and go again. The next one there below that is continuous. That history, the history of mankind is a series of good and bad times. That's where you have kind of this up and down effect. Uh, we have great times in certain uh, eras and epics of, of mankind. And then we have really bad times. And we have good times. We have really good bad times. The middle col- uh, category there, the progressive or the optimistic, is the idea that it's that kind of the wavy line that everything is generally getting better. Uh, and, and some of you are looking at me with kind of ruffled brow, like, really? I'm not seeing that. Um, I don't know what number you would be on the scale of the, help me out, Enneagram, if you're eternal optimist, what number are they? I refuse to take that. I tell everybody I'm a 12. But this idea that things are getting progressively better the, the, uh, through human history, or the, or the uh, opposite of that, they're getting regressive, or they're pessimistic, uh, that mankind is getting worse, one mankind is getting better, the first one mankind is getting, be- getting worse. Um, oh, I know I'd stumble over this word. <laughs> Apocalyptic is the, is the one, I believe, uh, that the Bible lays out, that mankind is in t- decline until the Messiah returns. That's why you have this long slope downward and an immediate rise. And an immediate rise, and then things are better. Now, I say when the Messiah returns, if you look at the screen where it says, underneath there, it says Jews and Christians are thinking of God. The Jews are still looking for the Messiah, if you're, if you're orthodox in that sense. You're still looking for the Messiah. They rejected Jesus. 2,000 years ago. So they're still looking for that, and they still think it'll get better when he finally comes. They've kind of missed the step and, and uh, the fact that he already came. Christians believe that it is Christ. And the third category there, <laughs> and I don't know why, I, th- I think I know why he put this in there, because there's this idea of, of the uh, humanistic or communistic worldview that man is actually the one that makes it better, that it's going to keep continue to slide and slide and slide until we make it better, and then it's immediately better. That was kind of his thought with that. Second Timothy, as we dive into it, because we're talking of perilous times, Second Timothy 3 is a picture, I think, of that last decline. Now, what's not in decline, if you think about our own history, even since those that are here have been alive, 
uh, what's not been inclined, what's been on the incline, is innovation, technology, communication, wealth. All of these have really gotten way better than previous centuries uh, as far as just the way that uh, we've, as humans, have been affected by them. They've actually gotten better. Uh, there might be an argument <laughs> on how better or whether that's really better, but generally speaking, I think that uh, you could say that it's that those things have been a, a blessing. They've definitely been a curse in a few areas. But the decline that this talks about is not innovation and wealth and communication, you know. Uh, it's not that. The Bible's not talking about that. The Bible is talking about the spiritual condition of mankind. That's what Paul's talking about. That's why that fifth category, I believe, is the right category of a philosophy of history. It's the spiritual condition of the world in general terms. Here's what that looks like according to the Apostle Paul. Verse 2, he says of 2 Timothy 3, For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. That's the spiritual condition that Paul is saying, hey Timothy, hey church, uh, in the last days, that's the direction it's going. That's the tone. That's the spiritual condition of the world. It really made me think of the times of Noah that Noah lived in. Genesis 6, 5 says, every intent of the thoughts of his heart, not Noah, but of mankind, was only evil continually. I don't think it's quite on that level. That's just my, if you want a little interjection of my opinion. I don't think it's quite at that level. But if you look at verses 2 through 5, it's not good. 2 Timothy. There's 22 descriptions, because there's a couple more that come in the next passage, but there's 22 descriptions of mankind in these last days. And really, chief of all of them that Paul puts at the beginning is lovers of themselves. Top of the list, self-love. Now, our culture over the last five, six, seven decades has been flooded with this idea of self-love. I mean, we have, we, we don't know now, like we've lived under that water culturally for decades. A lot of us, especially as younger folks, we don't, and I'm putting myself in that category on purpose, we don't know a culture that doesn't uh, predominantly preach self-love. We don't know any different. Maybe some of you older folks do, prior to the 60s. But this is certainly characteristic of our present age. When men and women are encouraged to love themselves, people are told to love themselves unconditionally, and that self-love <coughs> excuse me, is the foundation for a healthy human personality. Uh, the Bible actually says that you naturally love yourself, and that's kind of the, the default. But this love of self is the foundation for all of the depravity that follows. So top of the list kind of affects all of the rest. There's actually some categories in here. Uh, if you look at the first several, it's how 
Paul is describing how people view themselves. The first few, lovers of themselves. The next one, lovers of money. The next one, boasters, proud. Those are all how people would, in the world are going are to really gravitate towards this idea of, of how they see themselves and how they put themselves out in front. It's the top priority of life. Blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, all a category of how people relate with other people. And so blasphemers, people that just tear other people apart, right? Disobedient to parents, kids. This is going to mark people and of your generation or the next generation or the next generation. But one of the sure signs of the perilous times of the end is there's going to be mass disobedience. There's going to be mass disobedience. Not only that, there'll be mass unthankfulness. A lack of gratitude. There'll be unholiness. There'll be unloving. Wait a minute, you said that they all love themselves. That's true. Unloving in this sense, Jesus said in Matthew 24, in a kind of a real parallel passage of describing end times events, Matthew 24, Jesus says in verse 12, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. That's how Jesus described the end of days. Because of lawlessness, because, because people have abandoned the basic principles of, of law based in the Ten Commandments, really, for the whole globe, because of all of that, people's love is, is going to grow cold. It's going to go cold. And so Paul calls it unloving. Jesus says it's cold. Actually, in the, if you're reading out of the King James Version, I like this comment, or well, the way it's phrased in the King James, because the King James brings out a, a different dynamic in a way, and that is this, it's without natural affection. So instead of saying unloving, it says without natural affection. And it literally means this, without family love. Without family love. That's the, without natural affection, that's what they're talking about. And Paul said at the end of times, would be marked by an attitude of growing disregard of normal family love and obligation. You guys tell me. Are we there? Are we there? Is there a growing disregard of normal family love and obligation? Absolutely there is. The forces of darkness in this world appeal to the flesh to divide. And the family unit is the tightest unit. Right? You have, the, you have your relationship with God, your relationship with your spouse, and then the family. All tight units. And there's always, 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 brothers and sisters, an onslaught to bring division to those three categories of your life. To bring division in between you and the Lord, to bring division in between you and your spouse, if you're married, and definitely to bring division, and this is what Paul's driving at, to bring division amongst your family. And so the, the, the forces that are out there, the people that are driving the boat, whatever you want to call it, part of the strategy of the world system is to bring those points of division. Don't let it happen. 
don't let unloving affect you in that sense. Next one is unforgiving, similar to slanders without self-control. Uh, what does it mean without self-control? It's, it's where our culture is. It's an anything-goes culture. You know, ten years ago, the things that are now law today, ten years ago, we're like, ah, that'll never happen. Right? Oh, it's happened. It's happened. No control. No accountability. Anything goes mentality in life. The people will be brutal. They'll be despisers of good. Traitors. Which, by the way, if they're traitors, which means that they're posing as one thing while actually being another. That's what traitor means. So there may be those that pose as believers in the end days that actually aren't, that are here to sabotage the church, sabotage the faith, divide people. They're traitors. They're headstrong. They're haughty. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of good. Lack of self-control. It's kind of a parallel thought. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. That's back to 1 Peter. They have a form of godliness but they deny God's power to actually change a person's life and actually change a person's heart. They deny, in a sense, God's power to sanctify people. All the while looking really nice and religious. These also resist the truth. This is from the next passage down, 6 through 9. I'll just give them to you ahead of time. They have corrupt minds, and they disapprove, and they're disapproved concerning the faith, which is, Paul kind of throws that in as a contrast to what he said in the previous chapter, where he tells Timothy, you need to be approved of God. Now he says of the world system, he says, hey, they're, they're on the opposite side of the spectrum. They're disapproved. Of the, in the faith, right? They're disapproved concerning the faith. Then he says to these cultural attitudes and actions, he says just turn away. Turn away. What does he mean turn away? Don't be influenced or hang out with those that are marked by these traits. That's what he's saying. Don't let them, don't let them penetrate who you are as a Christ follower. Don't let them drag you down. Don't let them drag you into that mentality, that way of thinking. We raised our kids high, uh, largely on one proverb. I shouldn't say it that way, but this seemed to be the one that I kept going back to, especially when they got into the middle school and high school years. And it really speaks to this idea of influence. Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. So you don't have to be in the mix 100% to be destroyed. You just got to hang out there. Right? You just got to be a buddy to, to the unwise. You just have to be a buddy to the fool. Just a friend. The companion. And it'll affect you. The second point for today is, is that we need to be complete and equipped to resist this evil strategy... All that I listed there, all that Paul listed, not just me, but really what Paul wrote to Timothy, is laid out in this is their strategy. 
verse 6, for this sort, talking about this mentality, this type of people, for this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now Janice Jambres resisted Moses, <clears throat> so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. So he, he, he takes this whole world mentality and uh, he compares it. This is the only time you see these names show up. And so I had to do a lot of digging. Who, who's, uh, some people, uh, one guy pronounced them Giannis and Yambres, which I don't know if that's closer to the truth or not. I'll pronounce the J, I guess. So who are these guys? They're, they're Pharaoh's magicians in Egypt. And they resisted the truth. He kind of compares the world mentality to, to uh, Pharaoh's magicians. Hey, and guess what? Those guys were so steeped in darkness and in the power of the dark realm and in evil that, that they had power to, to come off with a certain amount of miracles. Go read the story of Exodus. They had a certain amount of power. But they resisted the truth. Their minds were corrupt. Paul says, this is the great example, but this is the strategy. Nothing has changed really through human history. The enemy's tactics are always the same. To take advantage and exploit the most vulnerable. That's the enemy's tactic. Started in the Garden of Eden, where the enemy, who did he approach? Eve. Right? He didn't go to the leader. Not that Adam had a great role in the whole thing all the way through. Not that he did it all right. I'm not saying that. But the enemy's tactic is always to attack, always to come on to the vulnerable. Paul calls them gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul goes on to give us God's antidote then to this huge spiritual decline that he's telling Timothy about. And that is, is that we're to be complete and equipped to fulfill God's purposes. He wanted Timothy to be complete and equipped to fulfill God's purposes for him there in Ephesus. Paul contrasts really true Christianity with a me-first mentality. That's, kind of the, that's my summary in, in two words, I summarize all that he said about this world mentality in a me-first mentality. That's what it is. And that me-first mentality then flows out in all of these various different ways that we've just read about. In that contrast to two, true Christianity, Paul's going to give this antidote. He had already told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he gave them this instruction. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Right? Follow me as I follow Christ. That was his encouragement to the Corinthians church. As, as I'm following Jesus, you guys just follow me. We're all going the same direction. We're all going that way. Right? As I'm, as I'm hear, heard from the Lord, then I'm going to give it to you guys. You guys follow along. Here Paul tells Timothy what it looks like for the Ephesians church which is very similar to the first phrase. Verse 10, But you have carefully followed 
he tells Timothy, you've carefully followed. This idea of imitating Paul's example, you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which have happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I have endured, and out of them, <clears throat> and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution, right? I, I, Dave, is it okay if we vote in here today? I, I, would, I would like an honest show of hands. I've never done this before, and it's okay. If you don't feel comfortable raising your hands to this question, you don't have to. I want an honest show of hands of who was had this verse in mind, or who, who, who of you, or who of me, it wasn't me, I, I can't raise my hand to this already, but when somebody first shared Christ with you, who showed, shared verse 12 of 2 Timothy 3? And all who desire, right, what does it say? And all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Who heard that when somebody was evangelizing and encouraging you? Anybody? Nobody shares that verse when you're sharing Jesus. Right? We want people to trust Jesus, not run away. I'm not saying that we shouldn't share that verse. I'm just saying that none of us, none of us think of this verse when we're encouraging somebody to trust Christ. Yet it's in this action that trusting Christ is paramount. It's crazy to think about it that way. We have to make sure that people understand what they're, what they're in for. Paul here is imitating, uh, excuse me, as he's imitating Christ, he's encouraging Timothy and really all of us to imitate him as he follows Jesus. The points of application for everyday living are these, to be careful what we believe. I guess we could add to that, be careful of how we're sharing the gospel, that we're not selling people on an incomplete gospel or a, a, a promise that nothing bad will ever happen to them. A lot of us, if we're really honest, will say that that was kind of how we were approached. It was all upside. When the gospel was shared with us, it was all upside. It was all you know, flowers, roses, you know, mountain meadows. <laughs> Let's be honest. That's the way it often comes across. That's not the complete picture of the gospel. And definitely not the right picture of the Christian life at all times. Careful what we believe, which is the doctrine he talks about. Be careful with our witness, which is not just what we say, but it's really our manner of life. You've carefully followed my manner of life. That's Timothy's witness there in Ephesus. We need to stay focused and resolute. Draw that out of the word purpose. You've carefully followed my purpose, Paul tells Timothy. That Paul was resolute. He was steadfast in his faith. He stayed focused on the word of God. He also trusted in God's plan. That's what faith is. Faith is trusting that God has a plan in what's going on even though you can't see it, even though you can't smell it, even though you can't feel it, even though you can't hear it. That you're trusting that God is going to do something in a situation and you're holding on to that. 
Not, your, not necessarily what you think is going to happen, but you're holding on to the fact that God has a good result coming out of this, even if you don't see it until eternity, that God still has a good result in the difficulty. That's faith. And then we trust over and over and over and over. That's the long-suffering. Somebody asked me several months ago, you know, how long do I have to keep going through this situation? How, how, how long? That was their question. And they were frustrated, and I get it. And, and they should, in, in their situation, they should be frustrated. But they asked me, like, how long? And they just kept raising their voice, like, how long? I was like, I don't know. You tell me how long long-suffering is. That was my reply. Because I didn't have, like, what do you want me to tell you? Two months? A year? Five? A week? You're only good for the next ten minutes, and then you can pull the ripcord on life and do something different? I don't know. I said, you tell me what long-suffering means. You define it. You dig it out of the Bible. All I know, as I share with this person, and, and I wasn't being mean, but it was a heated conversation. <laughs> All I know is that God calls us to suffer long for His glory and for His purposes. And we're to live 1 Corinthians 13, which is love. Picture of, a great picture of love is described in 1 Corinthians 13. Don't leave it to a plaque on your wall from your wedding. Incorporate those things into every day and every moment living. And stay at it time and time and time again. That's perseverance. And we stay at it time and time again, no matter the opposition. No matter the opposition. That's the persecution and that's the affliction side of, 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 of where things may currently be or where they may go. Because there's going to be pushback to our faith. There's going to be pushback as we live and follow Christ. Paul gives three examples there where he says, uh, which happened to me, all these things, persecutions and afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. He gives these three examples. I'm just going to read one of them. Uh, but they're all three of them are in Acts chapter 13 and 14. You can look them up. In fact, uh, the Bible in, if I go back there, uh, I'm a write-in-your-margins kind of guy. hope that doesn't offend anybody. But it helps me keep track of where things are. And guess what I have in the right-hand margin of Acts chapter 13 is the fact that it says, Barry preached on this in October 27th, 2019. As we were preaching through, Barry used to share from the pulpit in a rotation here, but this is a passage that Barry took on. I'll back up and say this in Acts 13. I'll give you a little summary and then we'll get to the verses that Paul's giving example. Uh, Paul and his group had ended up in Antioch where they go to the synagogue on the Sabbath and there they're given a chance to speak um, and, and share. The leader of the synagogue says, hey, we have brothers here if you guys want to share anything. Like, can you imagine that happening here if you're a brand new person today, never been here before and I just grab a mic and say, here, you want to share something? I mean, that doesn't really happen in church. Uh, I'm not sure it should, but it happened then. 
And uh, <clears throat> they're given this chance. Paul really preaches the gospel to those in the synagogue. And the result was is that the whole tr- town was stirred up and the people wanted to hear more of what Paul had to say the following week. Acts chapter 13, I'll start in verse 42, reads this way. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. It was a mixed crowd. Uh, They wanted to hear more. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Man, what a thing, huh? Can you fathom that? Like, let's be real. Word spreads fast, right? Everybody was, everybody was there, and as soon as they left, and they start texting and tweeting and, you know, DMing their friends saying, you got to hear what this dude has to say because it's something else. The whole town shows up the next week. Verse 45 gives us a picture here. He says, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Here's where we get into the pushback. So as Paul's bringing the word of God, as Paul's preaching the gospel, and really it's a phenomenal ser- uh, sermon that, he, that is there, and, and for the sake of time, I didn't read the whole thing. I'd encourage you to go back and read it. As he lays out a whole case for Christ, it's not the people that were hungry to hear what God had to say that had the issue. It was the people with the stuffy collars and the religious backgrounds that were jealous of what was going on. So they begin to blaspheme and oppose Paul and Barnabas, verse 46, this, then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, again, here's the example of boldness to Timothy coming to mind. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you rejected it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, that's a huge statement. Just pause right there and think about that. Paul's now, he's, he's brought the gospel, he's brought all the good news that this people uh, in Antioch would ever need. These guys, there's a few of them, not all of them, but there's some that get really uptight. They get real protective of their ministry. They get really spun up about Paul, so they start going the other way. And here's what he says, sorry boys, you're out. That's a huge statement. You've judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Verse 47, For the Lord has commanded us, quote from the Old Testament, For the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, compare that stuffy attitude self-righteous attitude to this attitude verse 48 now when the gentiles heard this they were glad and glorified the word of the lord and as many people had been appointed to eternal life they believed and the word of the lord was being spread through all the region great news right amen are you guys awake too hot in here 
Acts 13 is a pretty fiery verse, or passage for sure. Verse 50 says this, But the Jews stirred up the devout and the prominent women and the chief men of the city, and they raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet again and came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with the joy and with the Holy Spirit. Hey, push back against your faith is going to happen. Right? So buckle up. Right? Cinch it up. Get ready. Whether it happens now, whether it happens in the future, whether it happens... If, it, if, 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 if everybody in this room breathes their last breath with no persecution, we still have a job to do. And that job is to prepare the next generation. And the next generation. And the next generation. We could all have it soft. I get it. We still have a job to do with these young ones and the young ones downstairs to prepare them to live out these days. So don't think that because uh, things might get better on the front end that this uh, word from the Lord is for naught. When God's word is preached, there will always be some sort of opposition. We don't hear about it today, brothers and sisters. There is more people dying for the name of Jesus today than at any point in history. We just don't hear about it. Because any channel that you turn on, that message is selective. And they don't want to talk about this. They don't want to talk about pushback to the Christian faith. But if you really dig and you really get in and do the research, there are more people right now in this generation standing for Christ than ever before. There's more people that are becoming martyrs day by day right now than at any time in history. There will always be opposition to the gospel. And the key to living through difficult days is that last little phrase there in verse 11. This is really, to me, a real hinge point in the whole chapter. Because Paul tells Timothy, and, 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 and I put it in my notes in all bold, and I probably should have done all caps, because this is where focus has to be. And he says, out of them all, out of everything that's happened to me, Timothy, out of everything, he'd been, left, he'd been stoned, left for dead, whipped, beaten. This guy looked like a train wreck if he walked through the door right now. You wouldn't recognize him hardly as being human. He took that much beatings for Jesus. That much torture. And he says, out of all of them, the Lord has delivered me. God's in the delivery business. Whether you see it now on the front end, whether you see it later on the back end, whether you see it down the road a month, a year, a decade from now, know this. Don't lose sight of this. Don't miss this phrase in the Bible that God is the deliverer. And if you're getting pushback about your faith, so be it. Guess what? God's going to deliver you. If your neighbor doesn't like the fact that you're not mowing your, your grass on a Sunday morning and you're here in church learning about the Lord, so be it. God will deliver that. Right? Buy one of those remote lawnmowers. I don't know. Whatever. It's going to happen. That's a crazy example. Strike that from the record. Paul's whole life example is one of God's deliverance. That's the point. That's why he puts it in there. His whole life, uh, from the point that he was converted 
to the point that he was executed for being a Jesus follower was, what was summed up in this, God always delivered me. Let that be the story of your life. Let that be the story of, of your marriage. Let that be the storyline of your family. Let that be the storyline of this church, that God's always in the delivery business, that God is always delivering his people. He's always faithful to do that. Right? When he said in the last chapter, though we may be, uh, lose faith, God is always faithful. Paul also wanted Timothy to know that as the kingdom of God grows, so does the evil empire. My words, not his. Chapter 3, verse 13, as we wind this thing down, says this, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse. So back to a description of what the culture's like. Evil men will, and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. You know, when, you, when you're deceived on something, if I'm deceived on something, guess what? And I start sharing that, I'm going to start deceiving other people because I believe it's true, whether it is or it isn't. Right? And, and this is our culture's deal. This is where things will be in the end of days. That deception will just be multiplied time and time and time again. So how do you stay out of that trap? You have to know the Word of God. You have to trust that God's Word is true. But this is going to grow and grow, he says in verse 14. But you must continue in the things. Here's that stay grounded statement. You must continue in the things that you have learned and been assured of. We can't, be, we can't have understanding and assurance if, 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 we're, if, if, if this is a once-a-week occurrence, if diving into the Bible... If, if talking to people about the Lord is a once-a-week occurrence, that ain't enough, brothers and sisters. It ain't enough. Your diet ain't working that way. I'll guarantee it. Neither is mine. It's not enough. It's got to be every day. So you must continue in the things that you've learned and been assured of, knowing from which you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. You want to know why we do Awana, why we do Children's Church, why we have the nursery open? It's this idea that we can influence everybody. Everybody that walks through these doors gets, gets some sort of something. We want to influence people for the gospel. That's why our doors are open. That's why we invite groups in to use the fellowship even for <coughs> whatever, wrestling practice or dances, so that people will be influenced. We want to influence people. And here he says that from even as a child you known the Holy Scriptures which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Then the last two verses. God's <clears throat> all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's desire for you and for I is to be complete in our faith. And his primary tool, I'm going to put it this way. There, there's two tools, that God, three tools really, that God uses uh, to, to work in our lives. He uses one another. He uses people around us for sure. Which, let's be honest, we have to kind of sift that a little bit. I'll just stop with that. We kind of sift that information. And it's good to be discerning. He uses one another. 
He uses the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer to convict us of sin, to convict us of righteousness, and to convict us of the future, to lead us in the future. That's the short little uh, synopsis of the Holy Spirit's work to empower us to live a godly life. But Paul really hones in on the third one, and that is, is the Scriptures. The Scriptures, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Front to back, Genesis to Revelation. It's all important. It's all relevant. Even though parts of it is, is history from centuries ago, God has a purpose and a plan. Even in the most boring parts where what... Uh, actually, I used to consider parts of the Old Testament super boring. It's just it was a slog to read through. Uh, since we've been doing the chronological read, it's like brought it to life in a different way. Bits and pieces are coming together in a, in a new fashion. I see it, see it differently. Right? For example, the book of Lamentations. Oh, hey, read Lamentations after you read all about the, uh, the Israel going to captivity in Babylon. Then it all makes sense. Right? So all of that is, is fresh. God uses all of it. And we have to be careful, folks. We have to be careful because there's, there's people out there that want to just take part of it and toss it away, not relevant for you and I, uh, not important, whatever you want, whatever phraseology you want to use, that is incorrect. False doctrine, false thinking. It's all important. He says so right here, all Scripture. What part of all Scripture tosses part of Scripture out? None of it. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable. God's Word is endured through the ages. It's endured through the most difficult times of mankind. It's always resurfaced. It's always came and floated up to the top. In the Middle Ages, or when prior to the Reformation, the Word of God was boxed up. It was only limited to a small few number of people who could read or write and understand it, and they wanted to dole it out, you know, like, uh, like today's governmental benefits like you just get this you just get that and it all has to come through this guy or that guy Martin Luther said no way we're done with that he throws that thesis up on the door and the thing just exploded and men and women all through those ages gave their life for you and for me in this way they wanted every single believer to have a copy of the Word of God for themselves so we could read it and understand it and believe and trust in God. Understand what God's will and ways and what God's purposes are. God uses His Word, as I said, Genesis to Revelation, to equip His people. My encouragement as we go to communion, David, if you want to come on up, my encouragement is put your hands together and dive in. Just, I mean, dive in. Come to the Word of God thirsty. Like I'm almost chugged this whole thing down. Come to the Word of God thirsty. Daily, come to the Word of God thirsty. Even if, it doesn't, even if you don't feel like it. Put your feelings aside and be a disciplined Christ follower and stay on track. Stay steady. Stay devoted. Stay in there.
dive into the word of God like never before. We, these perilous times, and this message is as much for you and I as it is for any generation prior or any generation following. We need to dive in. Dive into the word of God. Seek the Lord that he would complete you and equip you for whatever he has for your hand to do in ministry. Amen? Amen. David, come on up.